So before you sit, let me remind you of that truth this morning. I mean, everything we do as a church when we gather is to glorify God and to make much of Jesus Christ. And, and we, what reason? Why should we? You want to know why? Because we are great sinners. And God's a great Savior. We are separated from God because of our sin, and we can't do anything about it ourselves, but God loved us, and he sent his son for us while we were still sinners. And Jesus Christ pushed us out of the way. His mercy is more, right? So if you're here this morning and you don't know that for a fact, and I'm going to tell you right now, it's simply saying yes. There's no uh, stairs to climb. There's no tithe to give. There's no big enough Bible to carry. There's no clothes to wear. It's simply saying yes. It's agreeing with God that he is awesome and you are not. But he didn't leave you. He came to you. And in Jesus, there's a rescue. Father, thank you so much for your mercy. Lord, I pray no matter what we talk about this morning, that we would not become distracted, that we wouldn't lose sight of what matters most. Instead, Father, I pray we would simply be reminded of your mercy. God, I pray that as we consider who you are, that we would remember that you are good. And Father, that our, our responses to what you've done and, and what you plan to do and, and how you've acted and how you will act, that our responses will reflect just that, a trust in the God who is so very good. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat now. Sorry, I made you stand for a long time. I figure I got to stand for another half an hour. You should stand for a couple minutes, right? Would you take your Bibles with me and go to Genesis chapter 29 is where we're going to anchor this morning. Genesis chapter 29. I'm going to walk through, I'm gonna get, let me give you the game plan here. Uh, I'm going to walk through the story in Genesis 29 and 30, hit some highlights. Um, and then I'm going to walk through answering the question of the day. For those of you who are maybe guests with us today, uh, we are walking through a series um, of questions that the congregation asked. And today's question is this, how should I know if I should let a dream or a desire go? How do I know when I should give up on the one thing that I desire so badly? So that's where we're headed. But to get there, I want to make sure you understand this story because I'm going to refer to it often as we walk through our message this morning. Genesis chapter 29, we see the story of a young man named Jacob. Jacob, as you know, if you know your Bible history, is a conniver, a deceiver. Um, he actually, when you read this story that we're going to be talking about this morning in particular, what you get a picture of with this young man is that he is all about getting the job done. What's next? I'm just going to get it done. I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do it. So at this point in his life, his job is to find a bride. So he's on a mission to find a bride, and he's walking in the eastern country, Genesis 29 tells us, and he comes upon a well that's in the middle of the wilderness, and at that well, he finds three flocks of sheep that are um, laying down before the well, and their shepherds are waiting by the well and sitting there, and Jacob comes, and he engages those shepherds in conversation, kind of like one of those, hey, so, do you know this guy named Laban? And they're like, yeah, we know Laban. Okay, so, yeah, um, why are you guys sitting here? There's stuff to be done. It's the middle of the day. These sheep should be grazing. They shouldn't be sitting here at the well. Why don't you water your sheep and get them out to graze? I'm not sure why you guys are wasting your time. And the shepherds respond to him and say, listen, hold on. We wait for everybody here. 
Now, we don't know why. We don't know if it's because the stone that was on the well was so very heavy that it took a number of them to move the stone to uncover the well. We don't know if it's that. We don't know if it was just a, a deal that the shepherds had made with one another to make sure that, uh, that the prime grazing land wasn't taken by the same shepherd every day. But they made a pact with each other that they would wait till all the shepherds came with their sheep, and then they would remove the top off of the well. They would move the stone. They would water their sheep. They would replace the stone, and then they would send their sheep out to graze. Okay, so now, 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 as they're describing and explaining this to Jacob, I'm, I'm assuming that Jacob is, is having this conversation because, you know, I don't know about you, but I can identify with hyper people. May surprise you. My last cup was even decaf, I'm proud to admit. And so he's engaging this conversation, but kind of over here, he's noticing movement and motion. It's like, here comes another flock of sheep. And he's no okay, and then and then there's this this veiled shepherd-looking person coming closer and closer and closer. But as as soon as that shepherd comes close enough, he realizes and recognizes it's not just any shepherd; it's a shepherdess, and she's hot. How do I know that? Genesis chapter twenty-nine, starting in verse ten. As soon as Jacob saw this girl named Rachel. He went up and he rolled the stone from the opening and he watered his Uncle Laban's sheep. The picture is this. He's having this conversation. Oh, you wait for everybody. I get it. I understand. Hey, baby, how are you? Let me get this stone out of the way for you. What does he do next? This verse 11. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept loudly. Time out. Young men. That's coming on a little strong. I understand the whole love at first sight thing. I I experienced that myself. My story with Stephanie is exactly that. She was behind a counter. I was on this side of the counter. I saw her. I did not leap the counter, grab her in an embrace, and start making out with her upon first sight. Jacob, on the other hand, he just starts kissing her and weeping loudly. Not a good look either, boys. Now, what is appropriate is Rachel's response. It says, Rachel ran home and told her daddy. (laughs) Girls? Yes, that is the right response. And so now her daddy Laban and Jacob get together and they start having this conversation. And Jacob begins working for Rachel's dad Laban. And he's working the land and taking care of the sheep and doing all the different things. And finally, Laban looks at Jacob and says, listen, I can't have you work for me all these years without any pay. So I tell you what, you've been doing such an amazing, I can't imagine doing my job without you being here. You've done such an amazing, you name your price. Rachel. I mean, there's no pause. There's no thinking. It's, I'll take Rachel. Now, why? Look at uh, verse 16. It says, Laban had two daughters. The older one was named Leah. The younger one was named Rachel. Leah had tender eyes. Rachel was shapely and beautiful. Now, we don't know what it means when it says Leah had tender eyes. There's a number of ideas out there, but it's, it's such an uncommon term in the Hebrew language, it's difficult to tell. It could mean she was, had a lazy eye, It could mean she was cross-eyed. It could mean she squinted a lot. We're not exactly sure what it is. All we know is it's set in juxtaposition with what Jacob thought about Rachel. Leah had, well, she had tender eyes. She had a great personality. Rachel was shapely and beautiful. 
And it continues on. It says, Jacob loved Rachel. So he said to Laban, I'm going to work for you for seven years if you give me your daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, sold. Now, you want to see romance? Romance is in the following verses. Jacob, verse 20, worked seven years for Rachel. And they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Aww. Romance, yeah? The romance quickly disappears. You get to verse 21. Jacob says, my time's complete. Give me my wife so I can sleep with her. What he says. So romance is gone. Now Jacob's showing his true colors. So Laban invites the men. You've got to follow along with me in verse 22. Laban invites all the men of the place, and he sponsors a feast, verse 23. So that evening, Laban took his daughter Leah, and he gave her to Jacob, and he slept with her. Do you notice how subtle that is? The author isn't like, you're not going to believe what happens. He's just like, matter of fact. So, so Jacob shows up, says, Laban, my time's done. I want my wife. And Laban says, cool, let's throw a party, big party, invites everybody, everybody's there, lots of food, lots of drink, lots of dancing, everything's going wonderful, and then he gives, her, uh, gives Jacob his daughter Leah, and they get married, and they consummate the marriage. And I, and I think the, the Bible says it great in verse 25. When morning came, kind of understated, there was Leah! You feel the, Jacob's kind of like, ah! <laughs> I had, I had a friend, I would never suggest this to any of you ever considering doing a wedding, don't ever say this. I had a friend who in a wedding was standing before the bride and the groom and the group and made a comment to the groom and said, I know, you look at, I won't use her name, you look at her today and she is beautiful and wonderful and amazing, but wait till tomorrow when she doesn't have makeup on. <laughs> so, needless to say, he didn't get asked back. Um, but, but there is that shock value when Jacob realizes, I got Leah. How did I get Leah? I, and he goes to Laban, and Laban's like, hey, just, just cool down, man. In our culture, we don't marry off the younger daughters. We marry off the older ones first. Now, I've got a deal for you, though. If you'd work for another seven years, I, I'd be happy that if you finish this, this wedding ceremony and of, of, of um, celebration during the week, I would be happy to give you Rachel to, to marry as well. And Jacob says... Yes. Look at verse 30. Jacob slept with Rachel also. And indeed, he loved Rachel more than Leah. Now that, 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 that seems, subtle isn't the right word there. I mean, that's, that, that's, a, that's a stark statement. He loved Rachel more than Leah. But I think it's important that you hear that, understand that as we continue through the rest of the story with Jacob, Rachel, and Leah, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Verse 31, and when God saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb. But Rachel, who was loved by Jacob, was unable to conceive. And so now it begins this list, and we'll talk a little bit about the names and the meaning of the names a little later in the message, but it begins this list of children. Leah conceives, and boom, Reuben. She conceives again. Simeon. She conceives again. Levi. She conceives again. Judah. So now Leah, who is unloved by her husband, now has four baby boys, and Rachel's got none. 
Genesis chapter 30, verse 1, Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children. She envied her sister Leah. Give me sons or I will die, is what Rachel said to Jacob. Give me sons or I'll die. And Jacob gets angry, and rightly so, and he says, Rachel, it's not me who closed up your womb. I'm not in God's place. He's the one withstanding children from you. He's the one withholding children from you. And so then what Rachel says is, then let me give you, let me give you my handmaid. Let me give you Bilhah, and she will be kind of a surrogate mother for me, and she will bear my children. And so Rachel gives Bilhah to Jacob, and Bilhah gives birth to Dan. And then Bilhah gives birth a second time to Naphtali. Now, now here comes this weird, not even passive-aggressive, it's just straight-aggressive interaction between Rachel and Leah, because now Leah sees what's happening, and she takes her handmaid, Zilpah, and gives her handmaid, Zilpah, to Jacob, and Jacob has a child with Zilpah named Gad, and then another child with Zilpah named Asher. I mean, so it's getting a little crazy. I mean, you have a competition where the score is kept by the children, Okay. Now, at this point, Reuben is somewhere around four or five years old, the oldest child of Leah. He's out, and he's probably playing in the field, and the people are probably harvesting at this time. And he goes, and he finds this fruit. It's, it's more of a fruit than it is a vegetable. And then they, they find this thing called mandrakes. Now, now, now mandrakes, really, it's hard to understand. I mean, it's, like, it's kind of leafy. It's got roots like a carrot. But the, the fruit that grow off of the little flowers look like tiny apples. And so Reuben, and we don't know why a four-year-old or a five-year-old is collecting these things, but he's got his whole basket filled with them. But there was a tradition at the time and a belief at the time that mandrakes brought fertility. And so as Reuben returns home with, I mean, as kids, you used to go pick those awesome dandelion fuzz heads for your mom, right? He'd be like, Mommy, I got a flower for you. And it was always like, oh, great, thanks. So here comes Reuben like, Mommy, I got this. And, and, and Leah looks at it. It's like, oh, here's mandrakes. And Rachel notices. And Rachel says, would you please give me the mandrakes that your son just brought back? And Leah's comment, verse 15 of chapter 30, isn't it enough that you have taken my husband? Now you also want to take my son's mandrakes. Rachel bargains. I'll tell you what, if you give me the mandrakes, Jacob can sleep with you tonight. What is happening? This has gotten completely out of control. And Leah agrees and she hands over the mandrakes. And it says in verse 16, Jacob comes in from the field that evening and Leah greets him and says, Oh, come on, you're with me. I hired you with my son's mandrakes. Jacob, evidently being Jacob's like, okay, and follows her back to the house. And Jacob sleeps with her that night. And now God has listened to Leah, verse 17. She conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son named Issachar. And then a sixth son named Zebulun. So so, so hold on a second. Now, Now get the story. Jacob is in love with Rachel, madly in love with Rachel. He's also married to Leah. Rachel so desperately wants to have children but can't. Leah just wants the affection and love of her husband. They have the exact opposite of everything they want. Rachel makes the comment in chapter 30, verse 1, give me sons or I'll die. 
And then verse 22 of chapter 30, it says, God remembered Rachel. He opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son. And she said, God has taken away my disgrace. And she named that boy Joseph. And said, may the Lord add another son to me. Please don't miss that. Chapter 30, verse 1, Rachel says, I just need a child. I just need one son. If I don't get a son, I'm going to die. God opens her womb. She gives birth and she names the kid. I can't wait to have another one. The angst in her heart longing for children. Leah's angst in her heart longing for the love and affection of her husband. Both longing for good things. Appropriate things. But obviously, it got out of whack somewhere, yeah? So that leads us to this. How should I know if I should let a dream or desire go, even if it's a good dream or desire? How do I know when I should give up on the one thing that I desire so very badly? So first, let's define a dream. So just, I think it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it because I'm a pastor and we can't leave anything unsaid, okay? So a dream is not the thing you have, today anyway, in our context, the dream is not the thing you have when you lay down at night and have like restless sleep and you wake up in the morning having had this crazy, crazy dream. So for example, my wife had a dream this week that I had a 107 temperature and the way they chose to bring my temperature down was to cover me in cold macaroni and cheese. There was so much else with that dream that was whack, I can't even get into it. But that right there, not that kind of dream. That's not what we're talking about today. You can let that dream go, okay? This dream or desire, I want to define it for you. It's this. The dream is a desire or a longing of the heart that isn't necessary to live or obey God. The dream is a desire or a longing of the heart that isn't necessary to live or to obey God. So let me unpack that a little. Breathing is not a dream. It's a necessity. You stop doing it, you realize how necessary it is. But the desire to breathe the French air outside of the Eiffel Tower, that's a dream or a desire. But, but it isn't necessary to live or to obey God. Finding a job is not a dream. It's a necessity. Now, finding a new job in a different field could be a dream, but it's not necessary to live or to obey God. Loving your spouse is not a dream, it's a command. Now, if you're single and you long to have a spouse, that might be a dream, but it's not necessary to live or to obey God. So our definition of dream in this message is going to be this, a desire or a longing of the heart that isn't necessary to live or obey God. So what shapes your dreams or desires? What, what shapes those? So, so obviously there's some things that will shape the dreams that every individual in this room has. So your uh, past experiences, the opportunities God places in front of you, even your childhood will create within you um, the the, the dreams or desires that may come to mind. But, but as somebody who has been redeemed by Jesus Christ, 
There, there should be other influences shaping your dreams and desires. So I'm going to challenge you to ask a few questions of yourself. So when it comes to these dreams or desires that you have for your life, here's the first question. Are you actively pursuing God? Not your dream. Nowhere in scripture does it say go hard after your dream. That's Nike. That's not the Bible. That's Oprah. That's not the Bible. Nowhere in Scripture does it tell you to go hard after your dreams, but there are many places in Scripture where we are commanded to go hard after God and seek him. So Isaiah 55, 6, seek the Lord while he may be found, call to him while he is near. Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Psalm 37, 4, take delight in the Lord, and he will give you your heart's desires. So when it comes to dreams and desires, it never says go hard after your dream or your desire, and God's just an afterthought. It says you seek and pursue God and God alone, and the dreams and desires will flow from that. Now, I don't have a ton of time to unpack this, but I just want to hit the, particularly this last verse, Psalm 37, 4. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you your, your heart's desires it, it feels like this cause and effect thing where it's like, oh, good, if I seek God, oh, look all the good things I got, right? And, and there is cause and effect in this verse, but there's a couple things you need to keep in mind. First and foremost, uh, don't be deceived. God won't be fooled ever. So he knows your motivation when you begin to seek him. He knows if you're truly seeking him or you're seeking what you're going to get from him. So you're, you're to seek him, you take delight in him, that means to continue to pursue him and focus on him. And, and what ends up happening is you take delight in him and pursue him and get to know him and engage in a relationship with him. What God does then is he begins to change your desires to be the same desires that he has. And so now your desires align to take delight in the Lord and he'll give you the heart's desires. God wants to give you what is good he knows what is best. You can count on him to deliver it for you. The primary importance is that you're seeking him above seeking all of these dreams and desires. So are you pursuing God? Are you regularly praying about it? Are you regularly praying about it? So, so you have the story of Nehemiah where men come back from Jerusalem and he asks He's a, how, how are things going back home? And, his, and the response that he gets is, is discouraging. It says, no, the people that are still in Jerusalem are in great trouble and in great disgrace because the city is in such bad shape. So Nehemiah chapter 1, you have this lengthy prayer of Nehemiah as he confesses that God is the one true God, that God is awesome and God can do whatever he wants to do. And then he reminds himself and God of the promises from God's word that God would deliver them and the people who would humble themselves and, and, and pursue him, that God would deliver them and, and take care of them. And so he, he's laying this huge prayer request out. And, and what's happening as he's praying is God is shaping his dream. As the, 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 the cupbearer, the one who would serve the wine to the king, he comes into King Artaxerxes' presence in Nehemiah chapter 2. And the king looks at him and says, Whew, you're not just grumpy today. This is a grumpiness that goes straight to the bone. What's wrong with you? And it says Nehemiah is afraid, and rightly so, because if you come into the king's presence with a negative disposition, the king could have you killed on the spot. And he says, how could I be happy when the, my home is in shambles? And the king says, okay, Nehemiah, what do you want to do? 
And in that moment, we know Nehemiah prays to God and says, oh, we don't know exactly what he says. I, I'll put my own words in it. Help! This could go really bad. And then he begins to speak and says, I would love to go back. And I would love to rebuild the walls of the city that I love. And the king allows him to go. See, I'm convinced that God wants us to bring absolutely everything that is in our hearts to him. The good, the bad, the ugly. I mean, if we're not talking to God about the things that we long for the most, then we're shutting him out of the process of of shaping our dreams for us. And it's not just when we pray, it's not just to have God shape our dreams for us. It's also to, 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 to give us a, a way to surrender our dreams to him. And by surrendering your dreams to God, please don't hear me say you're just finding a, a fancy way of talking ourselves out of our dreams so it should be more spiritual, like, well, you know, it's okay. I didn't really want that anyway. Praise be to God. No, no, no. Surrendering your dreams to God means giving God space to fulfill those desires in his time, even as he shapes you to be the person that he meant you to be in the process. So as you pray, it, it gives God an opportunity to shape your dreams. As you pray, it gives God an opportunity to, or gives you an opportunity to surrender your dreams to God. So it's, it's pursue God and continue to pray about your dreams. And thirdly, and, and I don't know which one, I, this one's important, is ask yourself this question. As you dream, are you dreaming in community? Are you dreaming in community? You need real relationships with people who love you, who can see your strengths and your weaknesses clearly, can bring perspective, and aren't scared to tell you what they see. Why? Well, let me, let me do this first. The, the, the Proverbs tells us why. Because without guidance, the people will fall. But with many counselors, there is deliverance. Plans fail when there's no counsel. But with many advisors, they succeed. For you should wage war with sound guidance. Victory comes with many counselors. So he says, you need to live in community. You can't dream in a vacuum. If you dream in a vacuum and you are the only influence in your life, it's dangerous. Because as Jeremiah tells us, the heart is more deceitful than anything else. It's incurable. Who can possibly understand it? Without feedback, without real relationships with people who will tell you the truth, you are setting yourself up for failure. Those friends, that community needs to be able to speak truth to you, no matter how much it hurts, because as Proverbs tells us, the wounds of a friend are trustworthy. The kisses of an enemy are excessive. You need proof of that? Do you guys remember when American Idol used to be good? Do you, do you, and you know what made it good? Was during the tryouts, they showed a lot of horrible tryouts. And you got to see people who have been told their entire life, oh, that was wonderful, get up on national television in front of judges and belt out some horrible noise that I could actually do. And, and honestly, embarrass themselves across the nation. Because they've never had somebody stand in front of them and go, nope. Mm -mm. Uh, might I suggest the piano? You, you should not be singing. But, but, but when you remove yourself from that level of relationship, you are setting yourself up for failure. You know why we do that? Because people prefer friends who flatter them. We want friends who will 
respond to a problem um, and say, you know what? You should just do what makes you happy. Well, well, what if what makes them happy is going to bring harm to them or to the other people around them? You you need to be in a community, a relationship where people will speak truth. This is terrible, and I'm about to, like, I don't know if you guys play bingo, like pastor bingo. I'm about to mark off a box, so get ready. I was in a high school choir. The bar was really low. Don't worry, okay? And we did concerts all the time, and one of the things that we had to do, (laughs) we had to do a nostril check before we went out to sing. It was required and mandatory. And so you would look, and there were about 40 of us in the choir, and you would look, and they'd all, we'd all be lined up, and everybody would be like, good, let's see yours, good, and that's what we would do. I know, talking about boogers from the pulpit, definitely a bingo mark, right? <laughs> Come on. The, the reality is, though, if you, and I was with, this just came to mind, I was with somebody for dinner this week, and our poor waitstaff person, I didn't have the courage to tell her. I was like, you got to. You need that friend, right? I mean, a moment of embarrassment is worth it. It saves you from something. You need that level of relationship in your life where somebody has the full perspective and can look at you and go, no, I know you think that, but, but no. So what should shape our dreams is a continued pursuit of God Relentless prayer life and dreaming in community. So now I haven't even answered the question, which means I got five minutes to answer the question. Woohoo! Buckle up. When should I give up on a dream? I shouldn't have to say this. I'm going to say this. If it's inconsistent with God's word, you need to give up on the dream. No amount of good and positive results will allow us to run inconsistent with the teaching of God's word. Okay, so uh, let, me, let me jump on to the next one. So when, if it's inconsistent with God's word, you need to abandon the dream when the dream consumes you. I think in the story of Rachel and Leah, you, you see that these ladies were totally consumed with what they thought was best, with what they wanted. Leah, it was a good thing. They desired good things. Leah desired the love of her husband. And again, that's not a bad thing. It just became all-consuming, and you could tell when you look at the names of her children. So Reuben, Reuben, that means in my affliction he sees me. Look, a son in my affliction. Now Jacob will love me. Simeon, now God hears that I am unloved, so that'll gain me Jacob's love. Levi, woohoo, three sons. Now Jacob has to be attached to me. Judah. Praise the Lord. See, her desires were good, but it got a little out of whack, didn't it? Rachel's desire is good. Not a bad desire to have children, but it became one that was all-consuming. And for her to say that if I don't have sons, I'm going to die is an overstatement and demonstrates the fact that she was being consumed by her dream. How do you know your dream is consuming you? Let me give you a few um, questions, I guess, is evaluate yourself. How do you know if your dream is consuming you? What do you think most easily about? I mean, where does your mind wander when you're free? 
What preoccupies you most often? What are you most fearful about losing? What does everybody else around you know about you? Those are evidences that your dream is consuming you. So not only is it got to be consistent with God's word, and you should abandon your dream if it starts to consume you, but another reason you should abandon the dream is when you see not achieving the dream as equaling God's holding out on you. See, if I don't get what I want, if God doesn't give me what I really desire, then he doesn't really love me, he doesn't really care about me, he doesn't really want me to be happy. And in that, what ends up happening is you begin to overlook the gifts that have already been given to you because you're so fixated on the one. Leah has kids but is never thankful for them. I mean, you, you look at her last child, Zebulon, and she makes the comment, six sons, now Jacob has to honor me as the mother that I am. It's still all about Jacob. Or it doesn't even mention, I mean, she has this little girl named Dinah. She's just, yeah, and I had a girl too. I mean, when, when you are so fixated and consumed by this dream, you miss out on what's right in front of you. Leah had children but was never thankful for them. Rachel has Jacob's love but is never thankful for it. I mean, you could look at Rachel, <coughs> excuse me, and you could say she's got it all. I mean, she, she has beauty, she has all the material things she could ever need, and she has a husband who would do anything for her. And yet, when she gets the one thing she really wants, a son, she names him, can't wait to have another. You, you need to relinquish that dream when you begin identifying the lack of achieving the dream as God is holding out on you. You should let the dream die when your self-worth or value is tied to accomplishing the dream. <laughs> the the self-value and, 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 and self-worth that, that is, is being shown in this story is this competition that happens when they introduce the handmaids into the situation. The names of those kids. So, so Rachel gives Jacob her handmaid, and, and, and they have a kid, and that name is Dan. And, and the reason that she names him Dan is because it says, God heard me and gave me a son. Finally, I'm vindicated in God's eyes. Ha! The next one is Naphtali. That name means wrestling. And she says, ha, with many wrestlings, I have wrestled with Leah, and I have finally defeated her. Leah gets in on the game, has a kid with her handmaid, and names, names him Gad, which basically means, oh, look at my good fortune, another son. Asher. Yep, Asher. All these women in the community are going to look at me, and they're going to say, look at all of Leah's sons. She must be so happy. They, they assign their value to the achievement of their dream instead of their position in Jacob's eyes and in God's eyes. You need to abandon your dream when you sacrifice integrity to achieve your dream. You never sacrifice integrity or righteousness in order to get what you think you want. Sinning in order to gain what you want is still sinning. And it will never bring about the happiness that you long for. And it'll always bring about the consequences of your sin. It, 
when you're willing to sacrifice your integrity and your righteousness in order to accomplish something, it's a demonstration that you're not fully satisfied in God. And when you are not fully satisfied in God, the next step is sin. To manipulate a situation to get what you want is an evidence of who the dream is really about. So let's say your, your dream is consistent with God's word. It's not consuming you. God and you are good. Your value is, is in Jesus. You're walking integrity. Your dreams have been shaped as you've pursued God, as you've prayed about it, as you've talked with close friends who aren't afraid to tell you the truth, and, and the friends aren't saying that you're, you're nuts. So what happens when you still don't get your dream? Well, Paul responds in, 2 Corinthians 12, saying, I just want to get rid of this thorn in the flesh. I just want to get rid of this thorn in the flesh. Lord, I just want to get rid of this thorn in the flesh. And, and three times he asked God for it. And every time God said, nope, nope, nope. My grace is sufficient in your weakness. And Paul says, therefore, I will most gladly brag about how weak I am. So that you might see the power of Christ in me. So what if you don't get the dream, even though it's a good dream, and it follows and checks all the boxes, well then what you do is you leverage everything you have, everything you have been given, even if you don't like it, in such a way to make much of God. That's, that's the whole goal of life. The chief end of man is to glorify him. So you need to know, and not just know, but you have to believe that you can live with or without anything in Jesus Christ. Because contentment isn't about what you have. Contentment is about who you have. So the answer to the dream issue really comes down to this. Dreams or no dreams. Accomplished goals, not accomplished goals. Desires or no desires. It boils down to wherever you are, you serve God there. God didn't save you so that he could become your genie and give you three wishes. I mean, we do. We want real good things. You know God shut the mouths of lions for Daniel, right? You know that God parted the Red Sea for Moses, yeah? You know that barren Sarah given a baby late in life. You know that he raised Lazarus from the dead. If God's able to do all of those things, don't you think if he really wanted it for you, you would have it? He has placed you where you are right now, in the situation you are in right now, for a reason. Don't lose sight of what you have for what you want. Wherever you are, you serve God there. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises that it holds. God, I, I, I know there are people in this room, and I could name some names, and I'm not gonna. But there are people in this room who are enduring the loss of, of a dream. And that dream is a good thing. It might even be something with family. It could be a job situation. It, it could be a health situation even. 
And God, it's a good dream, and they're wrestling with it, and they're struggling with it. So, Father, I ask that you would fill each person full with contentment. Not because they look around at what they have and think it's enough, but because they see you clearly and they know you're enough. God, would you... Would you heal? A dream unrealized really is a wound. So, Lord, would you, would you heal? Father, we know healing really comes from the fact that we can trust you. You're good. So give us strength even in these moments this morning to lean into you and to trust that you have our best interest. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his good name I pray. Amen.